December is supposed to be a time full of joy, togetherness, and celebration. Though for one family in the small town of Valdez, North Carolina, it was anything but joyful. On December 22nd, 1981, 19-year-old Rhonda Hinson attended her first, quote, real job holiday party. These are either a nightmare or a really good opportunity to relax and get to know your coworkers in a less structured setting. I, for one, love a good holiday party. Rhonda wasn't so sure about attending this one, though. She had bought multiple outfits for it, trying to decide just what to wear. But when it came to going, her boyfriend, Greg, who was a college student and had dated her through high school, didn't really want her to go. After careful thought, she had decided to, though. And as she walked out the door, her mom, Judy, called after her daughter to put a coat on. It was freezing outside after all. Rhonda told her mom that her gray sweatshirt was in Mark Turner's car. Now, Mark Turner is her best friend, Jill's boyfriend, as she had just gone shopping with him to get a present for Jill. And her blue coat was at her boyfriend, Greg's, because she'd left it there. Begrudgingly, she came back to grab a different coat and drove to her friend's house where she left her car and drove everyone to the party in a friend's car. In the early hours of December 23rd, at 1 a.m. to be exact, Rhonda's mom sat bolt upright in bed with what she described as, as a feeling like a premonition. She said she had felt panicky and scared and like something bad had happened to Rhonda, that maybe Rhonda had died in a car accident. Little did she know, though, that Rhonda was indeed dead, but from a gunshot wound she had sustained while driving her car just a half a mile from home. Her dad, Bobby, turned on his CB scanner and heard about an incident that was just down the road from their house. Rhonda's mom already knew in her heart that something had really happened to her daughter. Today's episode is another cold case that I hesitate to call older because it's not much older than I am, but here we are. Before we get into the nitty gritty and confusing details of Rhonda's death, it's time for a little business. If you're looking for a place to grow and study your intuitive gifts and to practice in a safe, judgment-free environment, then I encourage you to look at Murder and Mediumship's Intuitively Aligned Tiers, both basic and premium. If you're into the true crime side, which if you're listening to this episode, you likely are, then check out the premium tier so you have access to both the bonus episode that, re- that we record live together via Zoom, as well as the journaling prompts, the weekly energy forecast, the monthly energy forecast, and both psychic circles, plus the Discord server, which is my favorite. We've been having so much fun conducting psychic readings for each other and growing in our confidence and abilities as a group, and we'd love to have you jump in with us. The only way to get better is to practice. Gift certificates are available on katherineannintuitive.com and readings are open for the remainder of December and all of January. If you're struggling to find the perfect gift for your intuitive loving friends, then be the best friend or relative ever, and I might be biased, and give them the gift of clarity and direction with a psychic reading with me. I look forward to seeing some of you in circle and connecting with y'all otherwise. And don't forget, all patrons have 15% off of services for the duration of your Patreon membership, no matter what tier you're in. Okay, how did Rhonda Hinson get shot while driving home from her work holiday party? Let's start with the party itself. By all accounts, Rhonda had a phenomenal time while at the party. She wasn't drinking, as it sounds like she was the sober driver that night, or maybe she just wasn't really a drinker to begin with. Rhonda was a sweet girl with what some would have described as maybe a sheltered outlook on life, and she and her friends left the party around midnight and drove back to her friend Sherry's house, all in a really upbeat and joyful mood. 
The original plan was for Rhonda to stay overnight at Sherry's, but once she arrived, she decided to give Greg a call. Now remember, Greg didn't want her going to the party to begin with. 33-year-old me knows you don't call that cranky boyfriend who has that awful opinion, and maybe you should just ditch him to begin with. But regardless, she called Greg around 1220, 1230. And before hanging up with him, Sherry overheard her telling him that she'd be leaving Sherry's at that time. After hanging up with him, she headed into the bathroom where she could be heard crying. When Rhonda came out of the bathroom to leave, Sherry's mom, Verdell Pittman, asked Rhonda if Greg was mad. Rhonda's response was, good God, yes, he's mad. And she told Sherry that Greg was really mad and she'd better go. Now, Rhonda got into her Datsun, a little four-door sedan, and drove west on Interstate 40, exiting on her usual exit at Mineral Springs Mountain Highway 350. As she turned right from the off-ramp and began to drive up the steep hill toward her family's home, a bullet from a high-powered rifle entered in through the trunk of her car, through her seat, and entered into her heart, rendering her completely incapacitated. Yet she was found a few feet from her vehicle, which was still running. The driver's side door was open, and she was laying on her back with her arms down at her sides as if they'd been gently placed there. At first, police thought this looked like a random act of violence, something Bobby Henson still believes it could have been. A number of clues began to surface not long after she was shot that led most authorities to believe otherwise, though, and it appeared that she likely knew her shooter as well. Somewhere between 12.10 and 12.40 a.m., December 23rd, multiple witnesses saw a blue Chevy and two white males sitting under a bridge off of the exit ramp that Rhonda used just 30 minutes before Rhonda was shot, and only 200 yards from where her body would be found. Another witness saw this very same vehicle speeding away from where the murder took place, but allegedly with only one male in it. And that same witness said that roughly 30 minutes before Rhonda was shot, they saw her car parked where her body had been found, and it appeared that a man was standing at her door while she slumped over the steering wheel. The passerby likely assumed that the man was helping her out already, and perhaps that's why he didn't stop. I don't know, but it's wild to me that this many people were driving this road at night, even if it was just two or three people. I'm from a pretty small town, too, and I can remember driving home after a shift working at a local restaurant and just the roads were like empty, just absolutely empty. And I don't know though, before the holidays, maybe there was just a little bit more going on. People in town visiting, going out for a couple of drinks, seeing them driving home late at night. Regardless, police hired a hypnotist to work with one of the witnesses to see if they could extract more information from them. And in their state of hypnosis, the witness said that they thought the vehicle looked like a 1970s model Chevelle with front end damage, maybe chipped paint or some sort of minor damage. And the paint looked like a light gray on the front instead of blue like the rest of the car. They said that the man by Rhonda's vehicle looked to be about 5'10 to 6 feet tall and was medium build with dark brown hair. The witness said that a second car was parked down the road from Rhonda's, possibly a black or blue Trans Am. Authorities interviewed hundreds of witnesses. They polygraphed potential suspects and witnesses and even called in psychics to aid in their search. They were getting nowhere. They did determine that someone must have pulled her out of the car because according to her autopsy, she would have been paralyzed by that shot and unable to move on her own. 
Her sweater that she was wearing at the time was saved as evidence, and currently the touch DNA found on the armpits of that sweater has been entered into databases both state and nationwide. No matches have been found thus far. It's very likely that the touch DNA would have been from someone pulling her from the car, and it's also possible, though, that the person who pulled her from it had nothing to do with her death, as they could have seen her, pulled her out to help her, and saw the gunshot wound and fled for fear of being hurt themselves or of even getting involved. Police had two theories to operate on, and they were that one, Rhonda was targeted by someone she knew, or two, she was a victim of a random act of violence or an accidental shooting from idiot kids shooting off rifles and acting like idiot kids, as people who live in the middle of nowhere sometimes do. However, Special Agent John Suttle of the FBI believed that Rhonda was being stalked the evening of her death. So let's revisit the vehicles that were seen near the scene of the murder around the time of her death. And this episode is going to go a little bit farther into the 80s and 90s, and then we're going to go back a couple of times. So try to keep up. But Greg's family, the McDowell family, owned three vehicles, and there were multiple reports of a Chevy with front end damage received by the police. One of the vehicles that his family owned was a light blue Chevy Nova, which looks similarly to a Chevelle, especially in the dark. That blue Chevy Nova is exactly what he had recently driven to pick Rhonda up from work on her lunch break. According to Rhonda's friend and co-worker, that vehicle also had front end damage and missing paint. Interestingly enough, not knowing that her friend had already told authorities about this outing, Greg told them that he had picked Rhonda up that day in a burgundy Toyota Tercel. Why lie? If you recall, in the beginning of this episode, I talked about how at first it all seemed like a random act of violence to the police department, but as more information became available, it looked less and less random. The evening that Rhonda was killed, Detective John McDevitt told the family that he knew who killed their daughter. While Judy didn't agree with him, we actually don't know who he said must have done it, but when you start to look at information like Greg was the only person to know that Rhonda was going to be over there and that she was alone, you have to start to speculate. I mean, you can't help it. Greg had a reputation for being possessive and on occasion, even physically abusive with Rhonda. And some of it was even documented between letters back and forth. And in one letter he had written, he was apologizing to her for losing his temper and pushing her, then threatened to quote, beat another guy's ass for wanting to play tennis with her. And a letter from Rhonda to Greg, the only letter from her to him that authorities found at least, stated, since I'm such a liar, I ain't saying nothing. Thanks, you hurt my lip and my jaw where my tooth hurts. As an aside, men, if you're listening, we keep everything you give to us, okay? And I don't mean that in like a really sad way. I mean, if, if you're a teenager or you're young and you are receiving these letters from someone who you're assuming is like the love of your life, you're going to keep that stuff. So if you don't want to admit to anything in writing, you be careful what you give to your girlfriends. Anyway, law enforcement spoke with Greg after Rhonda was murdered, and he actually agreed to take a polygraph, but the results of that test were inconclusive. His father's response? The Reverend Charles McDowell called the results of his son's polygraph, quote, problematic. <laughs> because of the inconclusiveness of the first test, he took another, which he passed, and this was 10 months after the first. He was also nowhere near the crime scene and had plenty of time to calm down. But authorities also asked his father to take one that year in 1982. Reverend McDowell refused, stating that his word as a preacher should be enough. I mean, I can't think of any religious personnel who have ever been caught in a lie or doing something they shouldn't. Greg's theory, 
as to why someone wanted her dead was that perhaps someone wanted her job. I mean, how absurd is this? She had a small clerical position at a local steel plant. That seems so ridiculous to even say. Someone was after her job? Come on. If we return to December 1981, though, Rhonda's family held her services at McDowell's church, Wilkes Grove Baptist Church. According to Judy and Bobby, the service was really short and impersonal, especially considering that the McDowell's son had dated Rhonda for two years and some change. Even outside the service itself, the Reverend and his wife Betty were described as standoffish, not even speaking to the Hinsons the entire time. Greg himself only approached them after seeing a different ex of Rhonda's approach Judy to offer his condolences and hug her. Rather than empathy and heartbreak for their son and the Hinson family, they seemed to be angry. Two things from the service really stood out to a number of people, and one was Reverend McDowell stating that he was unsure as to whether or not Rhonda went to heaven or hell. He actually said that during her eulogy. The second thing was when a man with dark hair went to Rhonda's casket, reached in, and tried to raise her right arm as if he were looking for something. Rhonda's best friend Jill, who was also supposed to be kind of keeping watch for the police to see if anything weird happened that she couldn't that she noticed, she saw the entire thing, as did another friend who approached the man, who then said, Was she always like that? and walked away. No one even knew what he meant by his question, let alone who he was. They'd never seen him before. So years went by and no new information became available. And in 1989, a new show in its second season, one that many of you probably really loved, agreed to feature Rhonda's story. After the first airing of Unsolved Mysteries in 1989, only four phone calls came into the hotline and Rhonda's parents were really hoping that this would make some movement, you know, get some grease going on this case that was really cold. But the calls all basically made the same allegation. And again, there were only four of these phone calls. Two of them were anonymous and two of them identified themselves. But these allegations were that Rhonda was having an affair with a police officer whose name you can certainly find on the internet, but I don't feel it's acceptable to share here for a few reasons. One, going into detail about it seems ridiculous to me because the affair makes no sense logically or intuitively to me. And two, both officers who are involved in these allegations have since passed away, and I'd really rather be respectful to them. It doesn't look like they could have had any involvement, so why continue to drag their name through the mud? There's no reason to go into small town rumors like that. A lot of people speculated that she'd even become pregnant with one of these officers' babies. Her autopsy showed the absolute bullshit rumor that that was, though. It clearly indicated that she was never pregnant. Neither Jill nor Judy knew anything of an affair and absolutely would have known something, if anything, were going on. That's your mom and your best friend. Just weeks prior to her death, she really hadn't been sleeping very well and would even take random showers in the middle of the night, which behavioral experts indicate is common in sex abuse victims. Not only that, but she asked her dad to drive into town with her and told him that she wanted to talk to him about something. But then she changed her mind while she was in the car with him, saying that she would have to think about it. She never did get the chance to return to that conversation, and she seemed really bothered by the topic that she was holding secret and close to her heart. And I have to wonder if she wanted to talk about her relationship with Greg, about how it seemed like he was becoming physically violent with her. But we'll never actually know. On December 23, 1997, authorities visited Greg at work and told him they were looking into the Rhonda Hinson case again, but not that they were looking at him for it. 16 years had gone by and her family still had zero answers. 
So they thought they would talk to Greg and let him think that they were simply coming to him for a little bit of help. Well, during their conversation with the detectives, a few things differed from the facts he shared with them back in 1981. For example, he had originally told officers that he thought Rhonda was at her parents' house when they spoke on the phone that night. We all know that's not true and that he did know she was at Sherry's house. Well, in 1997, he told detectives that he had been on the phone with her while she was at Sherry's and that he indeed did know that's where she'd been. At one point, he insisted that Rhonda had called her parents to let her know to let them know that she was on her way back to their house, but she had never called. And then at another point, he says, well, no, of course she didn't call. But the thing is that she called every time she left for somewhere to do anything. She let them know she was on her way home or where she was headed. And for him to say that she called them just seems insane to me, unless he really believed that she did, because obviously they're going to know and be able to say otherwise. Well, Greg had told authorities that he'd been home at the time of Rhonda's murder, But in reality, he lived so close to the scene of the crime, it doesn't really matter because he could have made it there and back without issue. One of the vehicles seen near the location of the shooting was very similar to the car Greg had used to pick Rhonda up for lunch just days earlier, and he even lied about which vehicle he took to pick her up that day. Reverend Charles McDowell and his wife had ended up divorcing by 1997. Remember, you can trust the word of a preacher, right? But he left the Wilkes Grove Church after confirming rumors about an affair that he'd been involved in. And when authorities spoke to Betty McDowell in 1997, she told them that she and Greg had always suspected that the Reverend had either done it himself or hired someone to do so. Now, whether this was a bitter ex or the truth, I think we'll never really truly know. But there was one more thing that we haven't touched on, and that's the three things that were found in Rhonda's Datsun after she was shot. There was the gray sweatshirt that she told her mom was with Mark Turner, the blue coat that was allegedly at Greg's house, and a pink stuffed snake that had been a prize he'd won for her on some small trip they'd taken together, and the snake stayed on top of his dresser at his house. Was she on her way to meet Greg? Was this like a breakup where they were collecting of the things? Is that why she left in such a hurry? They had just broken up on that call, and he'd already made multiple threats in writing to her. We also know that he knew she'd be exactly where she was at that time. One more thing sticks out to me. When he was being questioned in 1981 and was told he wasn't in trouble, that they just wanted to talk to him, he asked them if his dad was in trouble. He was concerned about his father. Could it have been that the two of them were seen under the overpass together? In December 2021, new information became available to authorities, and the public hasn't heard anything about that information or what type of evidence it even was. But if you've noticed, a handful of the cases that this show has covered are coming back up into the news lately. Maybe this will be one of them. According to Sheriff Steve Wisenant, they hold this case deep in their hearts, and they want to be able to at least let the family know with certainty who is responsible, and maybe even finally make an arrest. If you enjoy this show, please head on over to iTunes and help it to reach the ears of more listeners by leaving a five-star review. Come back Thursday for another episode, and thanks again for being here.